You are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Month, week, something, holiday of Halloween continues. <laughs> it's a month, month, month. It's a season. It's not a day, right? Fuck the yeah. 31st. <laughs> you know, I mean, sure, that means something, I guess, if you're like a witch or something. No, you can tell me movie geeks because going into October, I was like, ass, it's October. Got to watch a bunch of horror. And now whenever I watch something that isn't horror... I kind of feel guilty almost. Like, yeah, I'm not doing it up enough. Yeah, it's the high holy holiday. It's the whole month now. It's like it's like chicks' birthdays. It's not just a day. It's, yeah. it's the whole month. <laughs> uh, it's it's our thing, Halloween. And uh, so we actually do have a decent amount of horror movies to talk about, but we also have a lot of like other stuff that's pretty fucking cool to talk yeah. about this week as well. This, yeah, this was, was a, a lot of good titles this week. Yeah, there was one or two that were not, no. but we'll, we'll get to that. Um, and in fact, let's just get to that. Let's go in and talk about the reviews and starting, of course, with horror movies. We are going to talk about this Blu-ray re-release from, I want to say it was Synapse, of a 1991, co- 1991 comedy horror film called Popcorn. Now, this has been on my... I'll get around to it eventually list for fucking ever since it originally came out where I remember I wanted to see it when it came out and I didn't. And I was always like, people were like, yeah, it's good. you like that sort of like, it's not one of the classics of comedy horror, but they're like, no, nah, it's good. You should see it. And it just kind of fell off the radar eventually. So I have to admit when you handed me this movie, I had absolutely no idea it ever existed. Mm-hmm. It was entirely fresh to me. In fact, I was looking at the DVD, at the Blu-ray cover in the back, and like, oh, it looks like a super gory B-movie. I'm thinking Reanimator, and when I put it in, and the Blu-ray menu is this dorky little goofy uh, pop song as they're putting together a theater. I I think I watched that entire thing through, just going, did I get the wrong disc? I, I don't know. Well, that's the thing. Unlike some comedy horror, like Reanimator, this is definitely, its heart is in a deep affection <clears throat> for horror, the history of horror movies. It's about horror fandom, you know, and being a fan and having that sort of like, gosh, I just squeak getting a chance to watch horror movies with my friends type of thing. And I have to admit, it worked for me. Uh, completely where they introduce a... Uh, uh, just just a complete misdirect of a plot line about a third of the way in. I spent half the movie trying to figure out, like, wait, if that means this and going through the plot to where when the bad guy got resolved or right. re- revealed, it blew my mind. And I loved his performance. Yeah, this uh, sold the heck out of me. There's one weird, very weird misdirect in this where the movie insinuates very early on that this is going to be a supernatural horror movie. Yes, so that, you, that was the one I was talking you about. You spend the whole movie waiting for that shoe to drop. And then uh, by the end, I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> So why did that even happen if this is not a supernatural horror movie? But you know what? I mean, this isn't like Spielberg didn't make this fucking thing. These are just some people who deeply love horror movies who wanted to make a a movie about how fun it is to get together with your friends and watch horror movies. I kept expecting them to pull a 22 Jump Street and actually call it a red herring in the movie. Mm. Uh, But yeah, yeah. just the fact that it's called popcorn should give you enough of a clue (laughs) that this is a, a slight comedy, but one that's hard is totally in the right place with a bunch of uh, young film students 
who uh, end up getting together and deciding they're going to resurrect one last time this old classic movie theater and have a horror film festival. And the only way to really they can do it with no money is uh, first off, they're getting really old crap films yeah, like horror from films. like the 30s and 40s yeah. and with with the little gimmicks where they tingle your seat. Yeah, the very William you. William Castle type yeah. stuff. And they find this uh, this old dude who uh, basically sets them up with a ton of old props and everything to use. But meanwhile, as the thing goes on, we realize there's somebody who is setting up these props and various other things to kill these people off one one at a time. It is actually a horror movie. Yeah. So and it's weird. Like the kills were both really interesting and creative, but at the same time, not terribly gory. Mm-mm. Like the gore was so much less than I expected it to be going into the gore. movie. PG-13 yeah. gore. But the kills were still interesting. Yeah, they were all, like, I mean, somebody gets impaled by, like, the Which, the the, uh, the needle of the giant mosquito prop from the <laughs> horror movie they're watching, Mosquito, that yeah. kind of thing. I mean, they're was, very tongue-in-cheek, you know, and there's, like, I don't feel like there was any moment I really laughed out loud, but I just pleasantly chuckled yeah. through this whole thing. It's just, you're going to have a smile watching, and the, like I was saying earlier, the... The actor who plays the actual bad guy does such a good job. Is clearly just like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to chew as much scenery as I can. Right. And you can watch the moment he transitions into everyone knows I'm the bad guy and just goes bug nuts with it. And a lot of people in here have had roles in other horror movies, but the most notable is D. Wallace Stone, who plays the mom of sort of the protagonist chick, who, of course, is a scream queen in and of herself. She's like maybe the only mom scream queen. Yep. Who, like, pretty much in her history of horror, she's always playing the mom. And humorously enough, she is in another movie we will talk about later, also as a mom. Yeah, <laughs> Yes, she is. Yeah, that has not changed. Um, that, that's going to be her role until she dies, I suspect. <laughs> but, yeah, um, I, a good time to be had with this film. A nice fix-up. Uh, Synapse put on a special, a few special dishes, additions, uh, a audio commentary track with the director, Mark Harrier, with the actors, Jill Sholin, uh, Malcolm Denar, and Matt Falls, who both acted and did makeup effects. This is one of those sort of everybody wore multiple hats in making yeah. this very low budget film that looks better than the budget you would expect it to be. There's a hour and a hour long making of documentary that talks specifically about how hard it was to get this <laughs> film made at all. Um, and a interview with actor Bruce Glover that's about six and a half minutes long. There's a stills gallery, the original trailer, TV trailer, some TV spots. It's, it's kind of a minor gem of a film that I think any real horror buff does, you know, owes it to themselves to check out. And this is a pretty, you know, what thoughtful release in terms of all the stuff that comes with it. Agreed. It's not quite my pick of the week, but no. it was really close. And honestly, the visual look of it, too, it was great. It was a great-looking Blu-ray. It was. Yeah. All right. Our next one is horror as well. But for this one, we're going way, way back to the year of 1932 <laughs> for the movie by uh, German uh, – I'm sorry, Danish director Carl Theodore Dreyer, although it was a German-French horror film. And this is based on a collection – parts – of a bunch of stuff. One from a collection of supernatural stories called In a Glass Darkly. Clearly the story Camilla, which was sort of a lesbian vampire story very early on, was a big influence. So much so that they actually include in this Criterion set a book that comes with both the original script of the movie and the short story Camilla <laughs> in it. So take that as you will. This is not... Nosferatu. Okay. <laughs> okay, good. I'm not the only one then, because the entire movie as I was watching it, I, I in my head 
had it that I was watching Nosferatu and yeah. kept waiting for that vampire to show that up. That type of vampire yeah. movie. And, and it wasn't until like the last 10 minutes of the movie before I finally went, oh, like, it's, it's, not it's last, just not going to happen. Okay. It's not until the last 10 minutes of this movie that it really feels like you're watching a vampire movie at all. Yeah. It feels like you're watching a, like, Guy Madden and David Lynch got back together, built a time machine, went back in time, and made a horror movie. Well, you know what this feels like? There was a project that a bunch of filmmakers did a while back uh, called the Lumiere Brothers Project, where they made a yeah. short with all the tech that Jake was available David around Lynch this time. Yep. Yeah. It feels like his entry. Yeah, um, it's there's so much that feels modern about this, and yet it was made in 1932. Yeah. It, it's... Like, I say it's not Nosferatu, and that's not a knock on this movie. It's just such a different kind of film than that is. Nosferatu is a relatively straightforward story with amazing, ahead-of-its-time cinematography and, like, all that that the classic shadows use and everything. I mean, it's a beautiful film. This is a really odd, atmospheric, surreal-as-fuck yeah. little feeling more like a... I don't know. Like I said, I couldn't get away from the David Lynchiness of the whole thing. You, you nailed it on the head when you were commenting on my Facebook post about it being David Lynch. Because uh, there's a sequence halfway through when, and I'll admit, because of the kind of dream logicness that it has, I, I got confused a couple of times. Really, what was yeah. going on? It's easy to lose track. The movie is I'm going to call mostly silent. Yeah. Where there isn't a ton of dialogue, there will go five, ten minute stretches without a single line. Because clearly this was on that cusp between the two different film technologies, which is one of the more impressive parts to me. But there's a part halfway through where the main character is going through this weird hallucinatory trip through the woods mm-hmm. and a castle and watches this cavalcade of shadow dancers on the wall, which... Felt exactly like that David Lynch entry that I was talking about a while back. And mm-hmm. partway through that, I was just like, okay, this is a very different than what I was expecting going on. Yeah, completely. Uh, there's a lot of stuff where, like, he's, I guess, astral projecting or some shit walking around. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not really sure. There's a whole bunch of stuff where, like, with kind of living shadows that are, like, like shadows that are uh, alive and doing stuff, but they are just shadows. Yeah. Um, there's really surreal elements that have that sort of otherworldly, like I said, there's no other word for it, but Lynchian feel to it. Yeah. That I really got a lot out of this. I've made me want to start smoking pot again and watch it because <laughs> it's that kind of movie. This is a stoner movie. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Oh, it, it's it's a stoner movie that's intended for, for film buffs. Because here's the thing, though, I will caution against. Like, unlike when going with uh, the old... Oh my gosh, and I'm blanking on his name now. I can't believe it. Um, the original, like, like Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. Charlie Chaplin, thank you. Uh, because it's more of a horror movie and because it's more of a dream logic horror movie, it, I don't think it has as wide of an appeal. But if you're into classic film and you're into horror and you like those trippy movies, yeah, this movie is perfect. Well, That's that. the thing is, like, I'm not surprised when this originally came out, it was not to great acclaim. Audiences yeah. didn't get it. They were bored. They were like, what is, what are you trying to do here? They went in expecting to see a horror movie and they got this weird art, trippy art piece. Gothic? And I totally get it. But I feel like I would rather rewatch this now than rewatch Nosferatu. Because there's so much going on here oh. that I'm, like, trying to, like, parse. There's so many interesting elements to this thing. I'm like, I want to go back and watch this with the commentary track, quite frankly. Uh, that I can see. Um, but, yeah, the story, basically, this guy who uh, named Alan Gray, who 
is interrupted after staying at a, a house in a, a, a rented room in a uh, inn by an old man who comes in his room, leaves a packet on his table that says to be opened upon my death written on the wrapping, wrapping paper. He's like, okay, that's weird. So he takes the package. He goes outside the shadows, aforementioned shadows lead him to this old castle where he starts seeing the, the shadows gathering around. And there he meets sort of the family that lives in and around uh, the castle, including the Lord of the Manor, who's the same man who left that package earlier, who suddenly dies from a mysterious gunshot. Uh, the servants let him in the house uh, and they ask him to stay the night. And then things really get weird, yeah. including, of course, the mystery of, okay, somebody here is a vampire because some y- a young lady in there is definitely having yeah. that classic something's visiting her at night and draining <laughs> her. Um, which is, to be fair, the least of the elements going on in this thing. Yeah, it's almost an much. afterthought. Well, in the the vampire itself, even then, you're not a hundred percent until the very end when they start pulling out a book about vampires that it really is a vampire. It's more of just a brooding presence for what, most of it. I will say they spend way too much time on that book about vampires. <laughs> it keeps coming back to this dude reading the book with like, and they want to make sure you got all the information. So there's like 14 shots that are just, here's the whole page of the book scrolling slowly down it. Yeah. You're like, I don't feel like this information was wildly relevant at this point. <laughs> yeah, when we were watching it, my wife turned to me at those points and went, you know, people read a lot slower back then. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's possible they read even slower now. Some yeah. of them just not. You know, you and your wife and me. Uh, so this being Criterion, it's a sweet edition. And this one actually took a lot of work, believe it or not, because the version that existed had just German text. Okay. And which apparently is very difficult to both subtitle in English and put on English subtitles because they have to physically remove the actual German subtitles that were on the print. So there was a lot of work involved in making this work. Uh, and it... I, it did. I could never tell. There was well, no moment I, I, I went like, oh, you can see the outlines of where the previous text was. No, no. Like they did a great job. And on top of that, this is clearly very much like with Metropolis where this person had 10 minutes of footage and this person over in a different country had 30 minutes of footage. And mm-hmm. they put it all together and tried to clean it up because whenever they go like outside or in a few sequences, you can see the There's film. There's a few points where it's, it's a little grainier. Yeah, where they had to just – there was nothing but a total shit. Yeah. Clone of but a clone of a clone. For the most part, it looks really good. And one thing that kind of surprised me was for this being a movie that was made in the early 30s, right when sound was coming out – there were some interesting camera shots, and they did some really good camera movements and dollies. You could still see that it was hand-cranked and operated by a guy and that they still hadn't locked down the rhythm yet. Yes. But I was really impressed with the look and feel of the shooting. I was as well. Uh, the audio commentary that I also mentioned before uh, that I have not listened to but plan on going back to for sure is by a critic and filmmaker Tony Raines, who talks about the whole history of the film, how the, all the many ways in which this was groundbreaking, both in cinematic style and in the fact the way it was telling its narrative. Certainly nobody was making movies this abstract by 1932 before this. And Dreyer, who was actually known for doing somewhat more conventional films, is one of the reasons people were oh. so surprised by this. We're like, whoa, what the fuck's going on there? Uh, There is an archival documentary film here that looks at the director's legacy and his life that was produced in 1996 by filmmaker Jorgen Roos that uh, is a 30-minute piece. 
Uh, there's a visual essay looking at the style and narrative construction of Vampire and its history and lasting appeal. There is a, a radio broadcast with Carl Theodore Dreyer reading an essay on film that was broadcast in 1958. Originally, there's a 40-page uh, illustrated booklet uh, and and with a whole bunch of different essays on the uh, on the film, and then a 215-page book with the original screenplay, and then, as I said before, the short story Camilla, uh, Carmilla, which should be in any good vampire fans collection anyway, because yeah. that's one of the classics. So yeah, this is great, great stuff. Uh, and with you, and I'm. Also with you on this is the movie that I would choose to go back and rewatch and watch with the commentary and learn about the history behind it. Yeah. It, it's fascinating. Yeah. If you have like those films that you get, those Criterion films, you're like, this is the one you should have as part of your history of film. Yeah. This is one of those films. Uh, then next up, we have one that is probably not one I would call should be important <laughs> to anyone's history of film collection. It's always – this is another film like Popcorn. I've always meant to see this movie, Rawhead Rex. Always meant to see it because back when this first came out, 1986, I was reading – hell, I had a subscription to Fangoria magazine. And I remember looking at all the images from the film and going, yeah, I can't wait to see that one. But I was growing up in Fredericksburg, Virginia. This shit wasn't playing anywhere near me. I'm curious. In those old Fangoria, did they show you the monster? Yes, they totally did. But the problem with the monster are so much more element – uh, like evident when it's moving <laughs> than in, in a still frame. You're going to still frame. You're like, that's fine. When it's moving, you're like, that is one of the dumbest looking movie monsters I've ever seen. And here's the thing. It was supposed to be even dumber looking. Like the idea for this monster was it was supposed to be phallish, phallus ish was supposed to make you think oh. of like a penis. And they toned that down a lot. There's elements of that still here, but the original design apparently was a lot more of a dickhead monster than <laughs> what they ended up with, which is still fucking terrible. I mean, you literally, there are points you can freeze frame this and see the actor's eyes through the ma- open mouth of the so monster. I have to admit, and just based on our conversations outside of this, I think I ended up liking this a bit more than you. Um, so it's written by Clive Barker, yes. which is important because... So Clive Barker has directed a few movies in his life, which I enjoy those movies. Well, two of, I think two of them, but I think he's a terrible director still, Mm. but I love a lot of the movies he's written because he does great mythology. And one thing that I really liked about this is the monster for, for all that it's a B movie, I still like the idea behind it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's the idea that it's this ancient pagan God who has existed, who, Unfortunately, because of a shitty budget and poor design, looks like a heavy metal uh, biker monster, which I, with the name Rawhead Rex, did not realize this wasn't a biker monster. Yeah. Until two-thirds of the way through when it was like, oh, it's an ogre. But uh, this monster gets unleashed by accident by a farmer who pulls down a a stone. Yeah. And basically just starts Killing people left and right as it can. Yeah. Including a couple of kids, which is kind of what surprised me. Very surprising that they moment. they went that route. Yeah. The, and, which was uncommon at this point still to say, yep, the kid gets it. Well, and it's interesting because I went back and I was looking at some of the extra features in this as well. And they talk about the fact that in the original story, it was far more explicitly this was a child-killing monster. Okay. Um, but anyways, uh, it kills a couple of kids. People doubt whether it exists or not, although they treat it 
surprisingly well, and there's not as much of that as I expected, where nobody believes the main characters. Right. And Well, based- it's not long before there's just no doubt there's yeah. a monster, because it walks into a trailer park and just starts <laughs> killing everyone. And you're like, people are like, I don't know, seems unrealistic that monster standing right in front of me is actually real and killing all these people, which you oh, there's a guy's head. So yeah, uh, but like, I liked where they went with it. It was just... Good God, is the monster design uh, horrible? It's bad. It's the, one of the problems. They did this thing where his eyes kind of sparkle and glisten with red, yes. but his eyes are ever so slightly cross-eyed. So it takes it calls your attention to it, and you're like, "Boy, that monster looks stupid." We'll see. And for me, I think it was maybe the dickhead origin. Yeah, but it ended up looking like a horse demon. Yeah, and it just it runs around and looks like what would be a. Um, a henchman villain. Like, yes. it seems like it's the gopher bad guy and there's some more amorphous bad guy that would be existing behind the scenes, but that amorphous ultra killer demon never shows up. It's just that shitty horse biker demon. I think I like that it, it takes place in Ireland. Yeah. There's elements of that that elevate the story to feeling like kind of cool. I like that, like you said, it takes you by surprise that it actually has kids in this movie that get killed. And there's, but other than one scene, there's, this is really just kind of a bare-bones, standard monster movie without much to recommend it by a director who's never done anything of note. George Pavlo also did the th- uh, two other Barker films that were thoroughly mediocre, Books of Blood and Transmutations. Yeah. Um, there's one sequence, because there's this whole thing where, like, the priest at the local church like is, a, like, all into bringing back this pagan god, and there's yeah. a scene where, like, he's, like, basically peeing in his mouth, rawhead rex. Oh, oh, so I did not interpret that as pee as all. Or cum, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I don't know definitely if it was, it was cum. cum. <laughs> okay, one thing or the other, and you're like, what the fuck, movie? What is and, happening? And it comes out of nowhere, too. So There's nothing setting it up. It's just, yeah. w- wait, what? Yeah, it's just like, I feel like that was the element, and that part, the his relationship to the church and that guy, should have been much more expanded upon to make this an interesting movie. Because as it is, it's just kind of a standard yeah. Monster of the Week movie. That's the part of it that I found interesting and was in, what kept me watching the movie. But ultimately, they just never go as deep into that as you want them to. It's, I guess because this has never gotten a Blu-ray release. In fact, I don't even know if it got a DVD release. But uh, they actually... Put together a solid package. It's got a nice slip cover with really beautiful cover art for this yeah, thing. Yeah. I mean, it's impressive looking. There's a six-page booklet. There's a commentary with the director. There's a 21-minute piece called Cal- Call Me Rawhead, who is following the guy who's actually in the suit, who's actually kind of shocked that anyone wants to talk to him about this fucking movie. He's, like, almost forgotten about it. There's a 11-minute What the Devil Hath Wrought, who was an interview with another actor in the film, who uh, basically says, yeah, I only did this for fucking a paycheck, but sure, okay, it's fine, whatever. <laughs> uh, there's Rawhead FX for 22 minutes, which looks into the really terrible special effects on this thing, and admitting we had shit for money. We had nothing. So we're lucky we could give us as good as it was. There's Rawhead Rising, a 21-minute look at the graphic graphic novel adaptation from the 80s, which never actually came to be, but what they were, what it was supposed to be. Um, a behind-the-scenes image gallery and a theatrical trailer. So it's a it's a pretty it's, solid package for people who feel like, and they're they're out there. Those people are like, oh, my life is not complete <laughs> unless I have Rawhead Rex well, in my movie collection. Can I just say that? B-movies like this, like Rawhead Rex, I think are the best ones to have great special features on DVDs and Blu-rays because 
the talent behind it, they're never the Rick Bakers. They're never the guys who are huge and won Academy Awards. They're always kind of the B-level guys. And you can tell that they just do not give a fuck while they're going through and doing these documentaries. And so they're just brutally honest. And it's, oh, yeah. Just determined. I mean, what are you going to fire me now? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, It's it's a little late for that. That and... I, I can't get over how terrible the name Rawhead Rex is. It's though. not good. It's, it's not just, good. It's bad. Um, well, now, considering what some of the movies on our list are, you'd be surprised to hear that what I thought was the worst movie we were, we saw this week was a little horror uh, Christmas movie called Red Christmas. Now, I admit, I'm fetishistic about wanting to have every horror Christmas movie that exists. I don't know what it is about <laughs> holiday-themed horror movies in general, but more specifically Christmas themed horror movies, but I'm like, oh, I love, I want them all. I ain't keeping this one. Oh man. It's, and it even, it's that, as we said before, D Wallace stone appearing in something else. She plays the mom in this not funny. I mean, that's the thing. If you're doing a, a holiday horror, it should have elements of humor in it by definition. You know, there's a few exceptions that I'll, you know, that sure. I'll even say like black Christmas is not a car comedy, but it's definitely got elements of humor yeah. in it, for sure. Or, uh, which we call it, uh, Silent Deadly Night has a lot of humor in it, despite it all being sort of under the, you know, it's just so absurd. You're like, okay, how can you not laugh at the guy in the Santa suit killing people? <laughs> Here, you said it best to me. You're like, it's just a kind of offensive. Oh, so <laughs> you, you hit the nail on the head. And, and yeah, this, so this movie flat out offended me and and i will admit like i i watch a lot of really bad movies and find enjoyment out of them Mm -hmm. uh if the creators of the movie really cared i I can watch something that everybody else thinks is just banal bullshit and i still get a kick out of it watching something that someone really dried on about 30 seconds into this movie i started to get pissed off Uh, (laughs) and uh, as the movie went on, I, I kind of got into the drama. So, so basically what happens is the movie begins at an abortion clinic being uh, protested and somebody bombs it, which right off the bat, you're like, okay, so you're trying to be offensive. Yeah. Or at the very least, you're, you're, this movie is determined to be political. Yeah. And then, which is, which I don't have a problem with inherently if you can agree. do something with it. Thank you. The Purge, that is a series that is incredibly political. I love them mm-hmm. because they do it well. Um, but during the bombing, uh, I, I'm going to say maybe an abortion goes wrong. Yeah. And somehow the fetus that was aborted survives. And, like, that's the opening two minutes of the movie. And in that first two minutes already, you have something happening which is incredibly political. You have something happening which just physically does not happen. Mm-hmm. And so I was ready to be upset. Yeah, if there was like a supernatural element to it or something, I would have gone like, okay, well, at least there's a reason. Thank you. But flash to decades later, D. Wallace Stone is having a family Christmas reunion with with her, the various extended members of her family who are to a person obnoxious, terrible human beings. I I have to admit, they were both obnoxious, but I kind of started to enjoy this section of the movie. Okay. I, I got a little bit into the inner kind of bickering that the family had and it it turns almost into a drama for a while and and i was it does it takes was, a while to turn into a i was into that part like i was enjoying it and was like you know what maybe this beginning was just crap and i just didn't understand it then they show that they keep cutting to this bad guy who has a really ridiculously goofy voice yeah and moves really awkwardly 
and, and it just kind of becomes insanely violent out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, I, I will say I actually enjoyed some of the gore in this. I, I agree with like you. the first killing in particular was like not super gory, but really coolly shot. I was like, wow, that was awesome. Yeah. I, I enjoyed the kills. They were inventive and right. interesting and super bloody. And one thing that the movie does that I both thought was a bad idea and was impressed with is they treat the deaths not as something that we should enjoy. Mm-hmm. So it's something incredibly violent. And then they make a point of showing how this is hurting the family members. And, and I was actually affected by that. I, you know what? It still, it felt like this movie wanted to be preachy, but it had no idea what it wanted to be preachy about. Agreed. You involve all these things, including that aspect of it, which has that sort of funny games aspect of, aren't you sick for even wanting to watch this thing? And all this stuff about abortion, like, what are you telling me? Are you trying to tell me abortion is bad? Are you trying to tell me abortion should be legal? What are you, what are you saying? And I don't think they had any idea what they were saying. I think they were just trying to push buttons, which... Is for these type of topics, not really okay with me. Especially towards the end when you really start to find out who the killer really is, which Mm -hmm. is obvious, and what he is. Which goes into a whole nother level of, like, seriously? I I, I don't want to spoil it, because who knows? There are people out there who may enjoy this movie, but by the last 15 minutes, I actually stood up and went, go fuck yourself movie, and, like, said that out loud. It pissed me off. I believe it. Yeah, I just did not enjoy this. Uh, there are some extra features here. There's a D. Wallace sits down uh, for a conversation for 20 minutes here with the interview with the uh, director Craig Wallace. There's an interview with one of the other actors, uh, Gerald O'Dwyer, uh, with uh, director, um, where they go to the house of the actor of the film who has Down syndrome, uh, who actually liked in this quite yeah, a bit. I did too. Um, there's a blooper reel. Uh, deleted scene, one deleted scene and a mini interview with Craig Anderson. But, you know, I'm never going to watch that stuff. I'm sorry. I'm never no. going to return to this movie uh, again. I, I put on the commentary and listened to the last five minutes with commentary and just got more angry. And so I was like, screw this. Understood. Well, let's go to one I heard a lot of people talking about this year at South by Southwest. So I was definitely super interested in seeing... And that is the movie Shot Caller. Not a horror movie, but certainly with some super bloody fucking nasty shit happening in it. It is also, uh, as my wife puts it, one of the most dour and effective uh, anti-drunk driving PSAs she's ever seen. Seriously, right? (laughs) Like, right from the beginning, we see uh, Jamie Lannister, Nikolaj Coster-Waldo, who's like family man. He's like got uh, a beautiful wife, Lake Bell. Um, he's, uh, on the road with, uh, uh, his friends, like a, a couple, uh, I forget his name. The guy who's on new, new girl. Oh, oh, Schmidt. I, I, the guy plays Schmidt. Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. it's Schmidt. That's all I know uh, him yeah. as, unfortunately. And they're having a good time coming back from a gathering together where maybe Jamie Lannister had a little bit too much to drink as I'm calling him Jamie Lannister. That's okay. Think. I'm calling him Schmidt. So it works. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they get hit by, they get, they run a red light. The car gets an accident. Schmidt gets killed. Like, Jamie Lannister goes to prison, is told they're going to make an example of your ass. Like, you have a choice. You can either fight it, which you're almost certainly going to lose and be in there for seven years, or you can make a plea deal and we could get you out in under two or under three. So he makes the plea deal, telling his wife, like, look, this is the only option. We'll get through this thing. But the movie, and I think unwisely, chooses to go back and forth in time. 
uh, quite a bit where we see him almost right off the bat, like where he is, you know, at the current timeline, which is that he is a hardened fucking criminal who looks totally different. He's yeah. covered with white power tattoos. <laughs> and this is a guy who worked like at Wall Street type of place, yeah. you know, and then has like a mutton shop mustache. Yeah. But, yeah. Like hanging out with John Bernthal, who's also a similarly uh, attired neo-Nazi and various other people <clears throat> like this. And, and yeah, he's like... We can see there's a humanity to him that these other guys don't possess, but nonetheless, he's also drank the Kool-Aid and is like, and we're seeing him get out of jail and be like, okay, you're released. And it's made clear he was in there for over a decade, not the three years. So the movie kind of follows both what happened to him and how does this guy turn into that? And then what happens to him afterwards as his family is very confused who he had told I'm dead to you. Don't, I'm a piece of shit. You need to stay as far away from me as possible. And they're not, you know, a hundred percent buying this, but you know, when you encounter the guy, guys covered in Nazi tattoos, you're kind of like, okay, maybe so. (laughs) There's so much to say about this movie. So clearly the movie is trying to talk about how our prison system makes people worse. Yes. Like that, that is in big neon flashing lights above the movie. This is the point of the movie. And also don't drink a drive. (laughs) Also don't drink a drive. Um, but like all the actors, I think do a great job. In fact, Almost every single role in this movie is played by a great character actor mm-hmm. who you have seen in a hundred movies or TV shows. You got Holt McCallany, Benjamin Bratt, Evan Jones, Jeffrey Donovan from Burn Notice. Um, like I said before, uh, John Bernthal. There's a uh, you recognize almost everyone yeah. in this as a character or, actor, or, and I'm going to mispronounce his name, Holt M- McCallany, uh-huh. who is one of those guys I discovered in Fight Club a ways back. He works a lot on Fincher and just saw in Mindhunters. Right, I love him. Yes, uh, Mindhunter. By the yeah. way, everyone should be watching that show. Yeah. It's so fucking good. Uh, I'm, I'm two episodes in. I'm right there with you. Um, yeah, just wait. It gets better. But so <laughs> like so like, clearly that's what the movie is about, and. It does a good job of it. Like I, I will agree that I wish they hadn't gone nonlinear with it. It yeah, would have been just, more interesting just to jump right into it. Agreed. But I, the problem I had with it is that ultimately the story that it was telling was one that – and this is on me. But I found that I just wasn't wa- wanting to watch. Mm. So it's it's not a movie um, – like prison where you, you know, you find out partway through he's a cop and he's undercover and doing this and this. It's, it's essentially a movie about a nice guy who rises to be a powerful figure in the crime world. Yeah. A shot caller as you were. But that's the thing is like, it's, we've seen the same story on TV played out over seasons where these characters have time to convincingly, change into that person here. I was like, you're rushing to that point so fast. I mean, I get what you're, you're putting on, on the nose, what his reasoning is, but still having trouble feeling it. And I admit, were this a TV show, I would watch the hell out of it and Mm -hmm. love it Mm -hmm. as it was. I found myself wanting to find out in the second act that he was an undercover cop and this was all a thing. Mm-hmm. And like, just give me some way to feel happy about the ending. And, and they managed to tell a mostly satisfying ending. And again, I can't fault the movie for being the kind of story that I just wasn't ready to watch. Right. But that's what it ended up being. It's There's- a great story that just, 
I wasn't into. And there's definitely a lot of brutality to this. And by the end, there's a certain amount of like, it was almost impossible not to see where this was going. Mm -hmm. There's a nice little kind of like bit towards the very end with his character and his relationship to the guy from Mindhunter that I was like, oh, that was kind of cool. But overall, I was like, there's... It's mainly the acting that elevates this film above being kind of a generic film because yeah. we've well, seen this this tra- this journey in characters a lot. And, and you know, strangely, and this is going to sound really weird to say, but one of the things I found myself enjoying the most was how do I put this? The professionalism of the white supremacists, <laughs> because the organization as it's pre- presented in the movie, you have your characters who are stereotypical. This is a a movie about gangs guy who's stupid and just wants to shoot stuff. But most of the senior leadership that we meet are smart, well-spoken, confident, calm people. They're professionals. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) kind of like the same reason why I love Heat, where it's bad people who do it well. That aspect of it was really intriguing. There's a sequence where all the white supremacists are locked in their individual workout cages outside, and they go through a workout routine amongst them all just so that they're all in good shape. Yeah. They're like, that stuff actually was interesting What's to they me. They call that the word for it's your job, your calling, but it's like evocation, evo, something like that. Uh, you mean, are you talking about, like, they kept referring to validating people. No, 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 no. Oh. When you, you refer to something, your, your job calling, what you do for a job, it's like yeah. your evo something. Oh, your vocation. Is that what it is? Yeah. Evocation? Uh, I feel like Ed Kemper from Mindhunter would say, this is these guys' evocation. Yeah, They're good yeah. at it. So that's, uh, I've, I've talked repeatedly in the past in reviews about how there's something inherently fascinating about no matter how evil a character is, if they're extremely good at their job, you kind of root for them no matter what, what yeah. terrible shit they're well, doing. It's interesting because for a movie being about white supremacists, very little of the movie actually has white supremacy in it. Mm-hmm. It's not about a bunch of horrible white people they don't beating really... up and killing minorities. It's just these are criminals and they're white and it's because so much... of the nature of the system, they form a group. Yeah, it's more about like that like so they're white supremacists because that's how you survive in prison, yeah. not because any of them really give a shit about it. I don't think anybody ever uses a racial epithet in this no, movie. They, they, they even in fact, have... they make a deal with like a a, a Mexican guy as yeah. like one of their partners, and well, everyone's like, "Yeah, oh, this guy's great." You know. And I was gonna say when when he first shows up in prison, they even have a point where the kind of leader of that group turns and says, "Look." You don't have to drink the Kool-Aid. You have to do this. You have to do this. You have to help us or we're not going to protect you. Yeah. But we really don't give a shit if you don't buy into this. We just – we want to work together and help each other. It's odd that that character, Jeffrey Donovan, kind of just disappears from this movie. Yeah. Like you're like, really? Nothing else with that guy? He's just gone? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. well, and this is leaning back to that point where this feels like it would make a great season of a TV show. Mm -hmm. Like, like this is should have been something like Breaking Bad. Yeah. Instead of a two-hour movie where it just, it was too big a story to tell. Agreed. Uh, The Blu-ray comes with a commentary from the director, Rick Romanois, and the cinematographer, Dana Gonzalez, as well as a uh, almost 20-minute piece called Inside Job that's basically like interviews and then information about the abandoned jail in New Mexico where they actually shot this film. All right, let's move on to our next one, which was a wide-release film that I did not see because the early reviews were so terrible for it, called The House. And generally speaking, with these sort of, let's just improv the whole movie, Will Ferrell-type movies, I'm, I agree yeah. when they're that bad. Maybe it's just because my expectations were real low, but I thought there were several really good laughs in this movie. No, I... 
I legitimately enjoyed the hell out of this movie. I'm like you. So Will Ferrell falls into two camps of movies. He either has uh, Stranger Than Fiction, which is like top ten Amazing. favorite movies, yeah. and then he has Talladega Nights. Or Wait, well, okay, but Talladega Nights is probably the best of that with <laughs> okay. Will Ferrell category of. Fine, well, and, and I know that. Like Step Brothers or yeah. you're like, the basketball eh. one. Yeah, you're like, eh. and like I'll I'll enjoy one or two jokes out of the the that latter one, but that's it. They usually hate them, and I kind of went into that expecting that kind of a movie, yeah. and I laughed my ass off throughout this entire movie. Like I was with it. I will hand a lot of that to Amy Poehler, who I thought was had some of the funniest moments in this whole movie. Huh? The plot here is uh, Farrell and Poehler are married. Their daughter. Uh, what is her name? Uh, do, 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 do. Al- Ryan Simpkins is getting ready to stand, go off to college, and they find out, as with the town hall meeting, that basically the money that was supposed to be set aside for her daughter for a scholarship provided by the town was no longer going to be available. Uh, instead, it was going to go for like a big swimming pool i think they yeah, said yeah it was a neighborhood nine swimming pool swimming pool yeah with nick park. kroll playing the the head councilman at this meeting of course because that's a very nick kroll role to play uh so they're like well what are we going to do we love our daughter so much we she's our best friend we don't want to let her down but we don't know what else to do because we definitely don't have the money to do this so their buddy uh jason manzukas who i feel like nine times out of ten adds a lot to a comedy when he's in it and here he is given a lot more to do than he usually is in these type of movies he's their best friend which is mysterious but uh he's like complete loser gambling addict drug addict alcoholic whose wife has left him or in the process yeah he's going through a super messy divorce he convinces them to basically work, go in with them on the, his largely empty house and turn it into an illegal after-hours casino for the neighborhood, which it's unclear where if the, none of them have any money, they get the money to get all this stuff together <laughs> to put in there, myself. including like a strip club room and stand-up comics that perform in a room and everything. But the place is a giant success right off the bat. And yes, if you go into this thinking about well how could they possibly no. i mean this is just it's a super goofy comedy and honestly I, you should know ahead of time to some degree you're gonna have to suspend your disbelief that of course pretends on whether or not it's making you laugh on the whole this was making me laugh i'm honestly shocked people fucking despise this movie as much as they do because i there's quite a few moments in here that i laughed out loud uh and of course it's it's one of those roll the dice if you'll excuse the pun um <laughs> But, like, yeah, this is all pretty much just here's a loose idea of the script of the scenes we have to shoot. Now you guys can improv your way through it like they always shoot these things. And so much of that stuff actually I thought was genuinely really funny here with lots of great – Comedians popping up in very in smaller roles as the neighbors who are showing up. Rob Hubel is a police officer. Uh, uh, Kyle Kinane plays one of the neighbors who's gambling in there. Steve Zissis uh, is a uh, uh, evil henchman, if you will. Randall Park is in this thing. Lots of people, um, and <coughs> I don't know. I just I, I don't. Know. I, it's one of those I'm like I don't feel like I can defend me enjoying this movie in any real way, except to say I did. Well, so for me, uh, I have kind of the opposite feeling towards Jason Manzukis. Most of the time, I find that 
he does what Will Ferrell does on all of his movies and goes about 10% too far. Well, he always and goes so, for the sick jokes. Yeah. Well, like, like, I, jokes. I can't stand his character on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Uh, however, like in this one, he seems to have taken over the role that Will Ferrell usually does as the man-child going too far all the time. And so because of that, like neither he nor Will Ferrell seem to go all out. Mm -hmm. And I like that restraint. There is a weird amount of (gasps) restraint here where it feels like everybody is keeping themselves from going that one step too far here where it would have just made the whole thing leave a bad taste in your mouth. And and there's a bit where Will Ferrell, uh, kind of like the shot caller, accidentally becomes a influential criminal representative in the community. Yeah. And except for this one sequence that I thought was a little too far, where they're going on a jog and just beating up people left and right to get all money. I really like that turn and the way he uh, portrayed that and the criminals, the real criminals who get involved down the line, that plot line, I was totally into. And Mm -hmm. I I thought that was hilarious. The only part that I didn't really get into was Nick Kroll's aspect of the movie. And it's interesting because Nick Kroll is one of those actors who he either is this kind of guy and where there's no sense of reality to it. Mm -hmm. And I don't tend to enjoy him or he tends to be just a little bit more restrained. And those are the performances I like. So I was happy to move away from him whenever they showed the, that storyline. He's a wormy villain that is here for nothing but a thing to make the plot move along. And that's fine because his character is kind of generic here. You're like, okay, we get right from the beginning what he's here for. And he's not in it that much. No. um, Which is good. A weird performance in here from Jeremy Renner (laughs) must've just had a day off and took a paycheck. Cause like he's in here as the mob boss. Who's really, I mean, maybe five minutes of screen time in this whole thing. And I think he has one line. Yeah. Maybe yeah. two. Yeah. Uh, it's it's very disarming. But, but yeah, um, like, <laughs> I'm, I'm with you, though. Like, this movie just worked. It shouldn't have, but I bought into it. I was laughing the whole I mean, way through. You liked it more than I did, but, but I still was will defend it <laughs> as, like, one of the Will Ferrell of these type of comedies that I think is actually yeah. really is worth your time. Um, there's a lot of bonus features here, as there always are, with a uh, – who, a uh, – uh, the house playing with a loaded deck, a uh, 12 and a half minute uh, feature. If you build the house, they will come about the set design, 13 and a half minutes, uh, 15 and a half minutes of deleted scenes uh, about Jesus, an hour and 21 minutes of extended and alternate scenes. That's insane. dude. See, that's that, almost as long as the movie. That's the kind of thing you get in all of these movies where it granted not that long, but where they do it by improv is yeah. you have Endless 80 versions. takes that they don't use that are all just different jokes. Which includes a 10-minute gag reel. 10-minute gag reel. Uh, a 9-minute linorama, which is more yeah. outtakes, essentially, uh, from the gag reel. And then uh, various trailers. So, I mean, like I said, as attempted as you might be to just throw this baby out with the bathwater, this is one that is, I actually feel like, give it a shot. You might be one of those people that just despises this, like all the critics did, but you might come in like us and go, that was pleasant enough. I agree. Absolutely worth a shot. All right. Going back to a comedy from a very, very long time ago, 1969's Take the Money and Run. Now getting a re-release from Kino. This was the second film directed by Woody Allen after his What's Up Tiger Lily, which was basically him just redubbing a Japanese spy movie, which I actually enjoy What's Up Tiger Lily quite a bit. I always, I'd never seen Take the Money and Run. It was one of the only Allen films I'd never seen. And I got to admit, I'm just not a fan. I think part of it is that 
I've never been as big a fan of what I call bananas error, Woody Allen, when it was just all line rama It was just constantly one joke after another. There's no real structure. Yeah. It feels almost like, like a bad Zucker Brothers ripoff, you know? Yep. Like that era. Although I, the books he was writing at that time, like Without Feathers, using the same style, but it, but they were more esoteric. I really love that. The movies, there's only, I mean, even the ones that people put up as like, you know, the really good ones like Sleeper. I'm like, eh, it's all right. It just didn't age well. And Take the Money and Run, I think, kind of spectacularly doesn't age well. well. So it it's a genre of movie that we just don't see anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not quite a mockumentary. No. It's not quite a satire, but it, it's kind of a mix between the two. It feels like what Steve Martin succeeded with in The Jerk, where, like, the character doesn't evolve at all in the movie. It's just, here is scene after scene after scene of that same character in different situations that are very loosely tied together. that's shot in a pseudo-mockumentary style with a narrator and everything telling what's going on with this guy, Virgil Starkwell, who Woody Allen plays, uh, you know... Talking about him from a young child, um, almost immediately becoming a criminal, uh, but a very bad one. Uh, who, of course, he's they get a little kid who looks like a young Woody Allen, so bullies are always beating sure. him up. And then a bunch of running jokes that start in the first ten minutes and just never stop throughout the thing, like his glasses constantly getting yeah, destroyed. I, I'm kind of interested to see how you actually explain the plot of this movie, uh, since there really isn't I mean, one. Uh, yeah, essentially, <laughs> it's just he wants to be a bank robber, and he keeps, and he's also meets a after a series of pe- perch snatch snatchings. He meets a woman who he's about to snatch her perch, but the purse, but then she sees him first and they get in a conversation and he falls madly in love with her. She becomes like the love of his life, but he can't stop from going and doing jobs and he keeps regularly getting, I mean, he fails at everything. He just gets caught, goes to jail, comes back out of jail, fucks up again. And that's really what it is. It's not a plot so much as it is a, a flimsy excuse for very Woody Allen of this period jokes. And, and I, so I have to admit to, in our modern era with everything going on with like Harvey Weinstein uh, and everything that has happened to Woody Allen in the intervening, God, I think it's been 30 or 40 years, mm-hmm. um, that whole relationship he has with the girl, super creepy. Yeah. Like even back then, Woody Allen is just – it's a little not comfortable with the sexual politics of the day, with the way he introduces himself and just kind of like forces himself onto her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I got a little weirded out by that, but I mean, I'll admit I laughed a few times in the movie. There were a few gags that I did giggle at, yeah. a few segments that were fun. It's just that it's, it's just very childish humor. Yeah, and it's very puerile. It's just there's no plot, there's no story. It's, it's yeah. It, it was, is. it was, I mean, like I said, if you've seen Bananas, you've seen this movie too. Yeah. It's the exact same type of humor and, and like the way the plot runs out and you're just like, yeah, there's barely a plot. It's a, it's a flimsy structure to support the type of jokes that Alan was doing at that time, which to be fair, I don't think he pictured himself as a filmmaker yet. No. He was a stand up comic. I mean, that was a big thing. In fact, his, if you actually go back and find some of his stand-up comedy, it's really funny. One of my favorite stand-up jokes of all time is a, is an old Woody Allen joke that I always tell whenever I'm dealing with, like, when I've had, like, Jewish friends and family, because they <laughs> always laugh with the one that's, like, I went to my, my – I brought my girlfriend to my, my mom's house, and she's not Jewish. She's Catholic. And so I brought her up because I was nervous. I brought her upstairs and said, Mom, this is my girlfriend. My girlfriend is my mom. He's like, my mom looked at me. She looked at my girlfriend. And she looked at me. And she looked at my girlfriend and she stood up and she walked over to the furnace and she opened it up 
and she got in. (laughs) 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 Which is a great joke. Um, but like, I, I don't know for whatever reason, the translation of his sense of humor in these early days, it just did not work for me. I'll say that makes a lot of sense. The movie feels like he just took his act and then filmed a loosely structured story based act. And like the one joke that I really dug in the movie was when he's going through a medical procedure and then he's like, and I suffered no effects except for, for 1.5 hours, I was turned into a rabbi. Yeah. Yeah. That was (laughs) the funny part. I'll admit I cracked up laughing there, but like to me, this movie is for people who are super into Woody Allen and want to see that old, uh, original Woody Allen comedy feel. Otherwise, I, I I don't see who it's really for anyway. Anymore. Agreed. Well, our next one is another one from Kino, and this is one I was actually really looking forward to revisiting. I saw this movie, The Flamingo Kid, back in 1984 when it came out, and I think I was expecting something, I don't know, more Porky's-ish. They really sold this like it was going to be a off the, you know, off-the-chain sex comedy for at that point. At least that's what I felt I, they were selling it as. But it's not that type of movie. It's kind of a sweet coming-of-age story with uh, a young Matt Dillon who is uh, in the summer of 1963. He's like, you know, he's got kind of a a very working-class, blue-collar family. And he ends up with by hanging out with his slightly better-to-do friends, going to a a very high-end, the Flamingo Club, a very private beach resort, where everyone there just digs the shit out of him right off the bat. I mean, he ain't a bad-looking guy to start with. And two, he's just... A, a very affable young fellow, and he gets invited to get to have a job there, right? Yeah. To, to go and and uh, be car parker, which is with tips to rich people. He ends up very unrealistically today because rich people don't tip. Maybe back then <laughs> they did, but um, like making a lot more money than he could with what his father had suggested, which was going to get a job basically uh, for the summer, doing more or less what his father did, working like a blue collar job. Uh, and as it goes along, he meets the girl who's from a very rich family and her father uh, takes a real liking to him, played by Richard Crenna. He's like, I'm going to mentor this kid. He reminds me of me when I was I his age. that was her uncle. Or maybe it's her uncle. I think, I I think it's her I uncle. think it's her uncle. I think you're right. But either way, he basically acts like, like her father. Yeah. Um, and it's just kind of this guy realizing the story of this kid who's realizing what's actually important in life and what's not. And like, it's, it's a really sweet fun to watch movie that strangely was directed by a director who most of the stuff he's done, I think is garbage. Gary Marshall, who (laughs) certainly did some good TV stuff, but he did uh, runaway bride, Valentine's day, New Year's Eve, mother's day, the princess diaries movies. I mean, he's not a guy I'm a fan of, but this is one of those weird little like pretty woman, which he also did is like probably the only other step in his career. I was like, okay, this one's worth watching. So I have to admit, uh, my wife and I actually both really enjoy anytime Gary Marshall works with, um, Oh God, I'm blanking on her name. Julia Roberts. Yeah. Julia Roberts. So like, like runaway bride, pretty woman. Like <laughs> I like pretty woman, but a runaway bride, I can't go with you. And, and I will say I, I'm right with you in that when I put this movie in, and this was one of the movies I watched with my wife, we, we both of us expected a kind of a zany teen comedy. Right. And it, it was okay. Mm-hmm. Like I really wasn't wowed by it. It wasn't bad. 
I really ended up enjoying the relationship he had with his father. And mm-hmm. it was Hector inter- Elizondo. Yeah, he did a really good job. And uh, interesting side note, I like the fact that his blue-collar dad is adamant that he's going to go to college. Right. Because in almost any other movie I've ever seen like this, the kid is going, I'm going to go to college, Dad. And yeah. he's like, no, you're going to go into the family business. Well, his dad has that whole, I want you to be better than yeah. me. But – not in the way that you're starting to go. Yeah. You know, you doing that, that's that's a that's a shiny distraction. That's not real. You know? Yeah, and so like I said, it, it was an okay movie. It, it, I ended up first of all being weirded out by the fact that gin rummy is a thing. Oh yeah. Uh which I did not know having never been in this environment. There was a guy at a bar I used to work at downtown who was like obsessed with the game and he would not leave me alone because I beat his ass at it every time we played and I didn't even consider myself a really good gin player but for whatever reason I just tore up the floor with this dude every time we played and every time I'd see him he's like dude pull up a dick. Come on, we're playing Jen. I was like, dude, you're just going to lose again. I don't see what oh, so, I think the guy beat me once in a hundred games. And, and it somehow <laughs> manages to make, uh, so I know nothing about Jen and it manages to make the, the sequences of Jen that happened in the movie actually kind of interesting and enthralling. I was into the movie. It was just that I ended up wanting it to be more of that zany comedy because mm-hmm. it's it, never really that movie. It, it's, it's not. It's a lot calmer and a lot quieter, but the problem also is I don't think it went deep enough for it to be effective as that drama that mm-hmm. it wanted to be. Uh, like <laughs> drama D. It's definitely I saw, comedy. I ended up seeing a Modern Family episode the week I watched that mm-hmm. that had almost the exact same plot huh. without the gin, just somebody working at a country club and getting wrapped up in that lifestyle and getting burned by it at the end. And I sure. almost ended up being a little more moved by the Modern Family huh. episode than I did the the movie. No, I really – I get part of it is that I knew what to expect this time. Yeah. And not to expect that type of film, that this is really a Bildungsroman, it's a coming-of-age movie, and it's not a wacky comedy, even though it has people in it like Fisher Stevens and Bronson, uh, Bronson Pinchot are more expected to be in a film like this around this point of their careers. My young Marissa Tomei is in this as I well. I did not even know that at all. I did yeah. not recognize her when I saw her. Yeah. Um, and a very lovely Janet Jones, uh, yeah. just gorgeous here as the love interest. But I, re- I super enjoy the period piece elements of this whole thing. There's a level of just a sort of sweetness that I don't know. I found very it, endearing to this it's whole that thing. innocence of the the people just leaving the fifties. Cause I yeah. think it takes place in 63. Yeah. And that is one thing. The whole movie, it, things kept happening. I had to remind myself, no, this isn't the eighties. This <laughs> is the sixties. And it makes a lot more sense then. Agreed. Uh, there's not a lot here extra. There's a commentary. I, I can't figure out why, uh, I guess because the film curator was Jim Healy, so I guess related to him. Maybe it's his son, his actor, Pat Healy, who we actually did an interview with a couple of years back. Fantastic Fest, really nice guy. But I'm like, he has nothing to do with this movie, so I have no <coughs> idea why he's doing the commentary track. But there you go. That's there. Yeah. Uh, but I, like I said, I enjoyed it. I, all right. Let's move into the final two films, which are from the DC animated universe. This first one is going to be my pick of the week. God damn it. I don't <sighs> care if it's a re-release. Mine too. It's just so fucking solid. It was actually the only DC Animated Universe film I did not have because they started. this came out before we started getting films from them for our Blu-ray review shows. And I, I've, it's always been my great white whale. You know, I've got to get it. So now they've put out Justice League, The New Frontier, and a brand new Steel 
a box edition, which, you know, even cooler, sweet. It's pretty, too. And this, oh, my God, it's gorgeous. This movie based on uh, Darwin Cook's incredible graphic novel series, I think largely, as well as you can with an animated version, translates his style, which has a sort of innocence in and of itself to it. You know, sort of like a retro is the wrong word. Uh, so it, Nostalgic. I'll go with nostalgic because as far as the art style, a lot of it does the, with the character design. Mm-hmm. It feels like those older designs and older stories. Yeah. But there's a smoothness to the animation and the, there's a – it looks almost kind of like watercolor yeah. in some sense areas that work really well in this format. Yeah. Um, Darwin Cook actually was deeply involved in the making of this animated adaptation with the story and the visuals here, and it shows... I did not know that. This still, I think, is tied with Under the Red Hood for my favorite of the DC Animated Universe movies. Um, and it's certainly considerably compressed compared to the story in the graphic novel, which is a sizable book. But... Like, outside of a moment here or there, I really felt like we're getting the stronger bulk of this material, which sort of follows initially as its protagonist, um, a Martian Manhunter, first coming to to Earth uh, at the very end of the Korean War. Like, we're seeing him trying to fit in, trying to figure out what his place is on this world. Then you've got Hal Jordan. Who strangely is the one character in here who's just Hal Jordan, not a superhero yet, till like the third <laughs> act of the movie. We're just kind of he's hot shot pilot. He wants to go to space. I want to see the stars. Um, Superman is already around, already being Superman. Everybody loves him. Like uh, uh, Batman is already yeah. Batman, but he has it, this is kind of about a transition point for him where he turns from the the really the initial design for his character. He looks just like he did in the first Batman comics where he's got the kind of very much bigger ears and everything and then he explains at one point like Superman's like you look different what happened he's like yeah I decided I want to scare criminals not children it's interesting I didn't catch that when I originally owned this movie because mm. I did buy it and it wasn't until watching it this time that you caught that it that I was like oh he actually changes his look yeah. halfway through the movie there's a lot of tiny details like that yeah. that are so cool that you didn't catch the first time around uh, the flash is already the flash um, and uh, uh Wonder Woman is already Wonder Woman. In fact, one of my favorite moments is one of those little details here where Wonder Woman first encounters Superman in the story where Superman has shown up to Korea where she has freed a village of the the women of the village who she she explains have all been tied up by these men and and you know without saying the word says they've been raped repeatedly. She has been used by them. Um and she's like, "Yeah, I freed them." And she's sitting at a table on a top of a table <laughs> drinking with all these ladies. And Superman's like, well, where are all the men? She's like, did you kill them? She's like, no, I didn't kill them. I tied them up and then I put all their guns in front of the ladies and said, do whatever you want. <laughs> Which is like so – like both a sort of classic wartime Wonder Woman and a much later interpretation of Wonder Woman where they just chose, you know what? We're going to make her a warrior soul again. Oh. But what really works in this scene – the moment where Superman gets in her face about it, and then she gets up off of the table and stands next, right in his face, and she's six inches taller yep. than him and much bigger than him, and it's this wonderful little whoa moment. You're like, oh, that's kind of cool. I never, oh, and, you know, and that makes sense. You're like, well, yeah, she's a fucking Amazon. Of course she's taller than Superman. I was going to say, uh, one of the special features that they go into, they talk about how Darwin Cook, when he did that, it, DC kind of took a step back. 
and it was it was a new decision for them in the comic as well. And, and I have to say, you hit the nail on the head with all of the characters. Uh, aside from the fact that I think this was the third time we got the Green Lanterns that turned out mm-hmm. uh, origin story in these animated films, it's almost across the board one of the best examples of each of the characters. Yes. Because the Flash is just on point. He's perfect. He's jokey. He's happy. Uh, he's Wonder deeply Woman, in love with Iris, yeah. who he thinks naively doesn't know he's yeah. the Flash. <laughs> uh, Wonder Woman, they nail the the warrior aspect of her, where she's not afraid to be a part of killing someone. It, mm-hmm. That's not a part of it. She doesn't have any qualms about that. Superman has that Boy Scout, Big blue wide-eyed... Boy Scout. Yeah. Uh, aspect, but at the same time, he's aware that uh, other people don't necessarily follow his moral beliefs. Like, I-, I loved the interpretations of all the characters in this. And I love that this is, like, it's a, like, Elseworlds Golden Age ta- of comics tale, you know? Because this feels very golden slash beginning of Silver Age, you know, with the characters and the way the world is presented. But this is not the way things happened originally. It's just, it's almost like a reboot in and of itself, I'm kind of surprised there aren't a whole series of comics that are the what happened after the New Frontier because this was so deeply beloved by fans. It's kind of become one of those books like The Watchmen that you're like, you really should have this in your collection. Yeah, I know, and I've, I've never read it. Uh, one of the things that I like too is that they they go into that 50s era McCarthyism, and that's mm-hmm. a heavy, heavy influence in the story. But at the same time, it never feels oppressive or going too far. In fact, the character who is kind of the personification of that, uh, the Reds are bad, and if we don't know who they are when you do kill them or just cut them open to look at what they are, he has this wonderful moment later on where when everybody else is balking at helping these heroes, he's just like, no, fuck it. They're the good guys. They're clearly the good guys. We're doing this. It's okay. Yeah. But like, he's just, I was wrong. Yeah, and I like how they have that. Just no, I'm I'm a good guy. I just believe in protection. There's a sort of like sense of like when we felt a sense of America truly being yeah. great. Feel you know what I mean? Like that sort of innocence of the like of the '50s that's still present here, with a bit of the cynicism of the '60s creeping yeah. in. But that's still that belief that we can do the right thing. We should do the right thing. This is what we're about. Agree. That's super sweet and innocent, and in a way that befits a, a DC story taking place in 1953 or 1963. Uh, as well, just all the Golden Age and Silver Age characters that pop up in this fucking thing, you know, like Ace Morgan and Rick Flag and King Faraday, uh, um, uh, Doctor Magnus, the Guardian. There, there's a, a shit ton of them who appear in this thing, and you're like, oh my god, this is like really obscure. The Blackhawks are in this fucking thing, for God's sake. <laughs> well, this is why I want to read the comic because, in it, and this is the only part where I, you could feel that it was shortened. Mm-hmm. Is in the last third when they get into the climax and they introduce the eighty other characters mm-hmm. you can tell in the comics oh they had more time to flesh them out in the story as well whereas right. here it's like oh that was green arrow okay now he's gone and <laughs> although i do love the moment that i believe was the same way in the comic with aquaman which is until the very end oh, he just like, shows that, was, up. that was a funny <laughs> yeah. bit uh, all right, so what separates this from the previous edition? What about this says, do I need to rebuy this edition? Well, first off, it is a really nice steel book. So if that's a thing for you, you get that. The main extra feature on top of what may be one of the best collections of special features of any of these, do you remember when all the DC Animated Universe things had like two hours yeah. plus of like fantastic documentaries about 
everything, every detail you might want to know associated with this movie. This was one of those. This adds on to it a really nice feature uh, that looks into Darwin Cook, who just passed away last year. And even though he was a latecomer into being kind of a a recognized figure, like originally he was just kind of like a, a fill-in guy. And then... He, in, God, I, I don't think it was till the late 90s, really entered comics officially and since has become one of those people that everybody goes, he was one of the all-time greats. It, you know, um, his Parker books are, wow. So it's interesting. <coughs> Except for the Parker books, which I own, I've never really read any Darwin Cook. Mm-hmm. And when I watched this, I had some time to kill beforehand. And so I watched the Darwin Cook documentary and a couple of the others. It was really interesting. It has me wanting to track down the comics that he originally wrote, like his Batman Ego. Yeah, I haven't read that others. one. His Catwoman books are great. He, I'm, I'm gonna look he's the one too. who set the new Catwoman look, which they've stuck with, which is kind of like she's got, kind of got like a hoodie type look yeah. thing going on with the goggles and all that. That's Darwin Cook. You know, that's that became what Catwoman looks like now. Yeah. Which I, I super love. So, yeah, highly recommended. Both of our pick of the week, I believe we said. Uh, yes, most definitely. All right. Well, let's go to our final movie, which is another DC animated universe, except this one is a, a first release. And this is uh, Batman versus Two-Face. This is not one of the ones that's really considered in the line of the regular DC animated universe releases. That's next one's going to be Gotham by Gaslight, which there is a trailer for on uh, uh, the new the release. New Frontier. Uh, the new Frontier. This is kind of a, a two-off that they did going, you know, it's weird that Adam West and Burt Ward are still alive and we're not doing Batman 66 <laughs> stuff with them. Somebody at some point said, yeah, why aren't we doing that? Um, Adam West clearly being way into it and has been saying as much for decades. So they called them up and said, you guys, would, would you want to voice these characters in a pretty much straight up episodes of Batman 66 as animated films? And they were like, hell yeah. So they did uh, the, the original one, Batman Return of the Cape Crusaders, which we gave a very strong review to, partially because not only did it feel like an original Batman 66 episode, but it was very metatextual in that it was like making all these jokes that were about the Batman universe and fandom at a larger level that wouldn't you've never, you wouldn't have seen a Batman 66 episode because they wouldn't have had the context for them. Sure. I was telling you earlier, hadn't seen it. There's a whole joke where he's hanging out with Catwoman and they're getting romantic. It's just like, what do you think? We're going to end up like, we're going to leave, what, what, stop doing what we do and move to Paris and go drink tea in a cafe together, which is, you know, Batman, uh, Dark Knight Rises joke. Uh, and I really, really super enjoyed that. I think Batman versus Two-Face still works as a tribute to, uh, you know, this era of Batman, which I grew up watching and totally adored. Like one of my proudest possessions is my Batman 66 Blu-ray box set with everything. I love it. Go back to it regularly. There's a button on the box that plays the Bat theme. That's how <laughs> awesome that is. Which, by the way, is still the best Batman theme of all time. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. I mean, everyone admits that. Fair Batman! <laughs> that's a badass theme. But I guess the problem with this one versus that last one is that it doesn't really have as much of that metatextual stuff. It really just feels like an episode of Batman 66 that takes the the smart tack of taking a character that was around then, but they never got around to putting in the Batman 66 uh, show, which is Two-Face. Like that, they. I, if I remember correctly, they just said they couldn't find a way to do it and make it make him funny, you know, and because he's too tragic of a character. But here they go, well, how do we do this? How do you do that? How do you take him and make him funny? Well, you call William Shatner to voice uh, the role. Who I, I did a good job. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I, I have to admit that 
this movie didn't work for me. And I don't have the connection to Batman 66 that you do. Um, the Bruce Tim Batman was what I grew up with when I was younger. So that's sure. kind of how I identify Batman. And I've seen episodes of the 66 and I get it. Uh, I appreciate that people like it, but it's never been something that really did it for me. Mm-hmm. And so watching this movie when three minutes in, there's a hostage situation where they are – no, it's not even a hostage situation. It's an experiment where they are extracting the evil from the various super criminals yeah. to try and, and the big make them into – Evil extraction machine. Yeah, it's literally called the evil extractor. Also introducing <laughs> Dr. Hugo Strange and Harleen Quinzel yeah. into the Batman 66 mythology with this. And I was just like, uh, uh, okay – I mean, which is the most Batman 66 thing ever, yeah. to have uh, the evil extractor. And then they, like, uh, the, Two-Face gets made, because uh, it all goes wrong, and there's chaos, and Batman shows up, and then they kind of do a montage and explain the entire iteration, which feels like years pass yeah. in that opening montage. Yeah, I think that was montage. supposed to be the yeah. case. Yeah, like, he fights Two-Face for a long time, and, and, and we just... To only see it in a montage credit sequence. The one thing I'm impressed with is they jump straight into Two-Face has been captured. He's been cured. He's gone through therapy. He's back working for the government, although in a more menial position. Mm-hmm. And then, lo and behold, someone shows up who starts who sounds like Two-Face and has Two-Face's uh, motives. But clearly Harvey Dent looks normal, so it can't necessarily be him. And that's kind of the mystery plot that we yeah. follow. So if it's not Harvey Dent, who is Two-Face? Yeah. yeah. And I just, it was too goofy for me. I was never able to take it seriously. And there were so many weird things that I, I know this is a nitpick, but like when Two-Face gets turned, he specifically is Two-Face because the evil juice only splashes on half of his face. Uh-huh. Yet when uh, the... Batman 66 city ending plot of uh, the evil juice being spread everywhere happens. Everyone gets turned into two faces, even though they should just be evil people. Yeah, they and should like, be all together. All, all monster. Like That bugged me more than it probably should have. Yeah, that's one of those, like, I can't, I and mean, maybe it's just, like I said, I'm just so hyper familiar with the Batman 66 yeah. universe that I'm like, if you go into this expecting to take it, at any degree seriously, then you're watching it wrong. Yeah, exactly. And, and I'm fully aware that that is on me. But that being said, they're like, it felt like they were setting up something that they could have had a better, like, solution to the two is two face mystery than they ended up having, which felt like kind of a cop out. You, you know what I would have liked to have seen? I would have liked to have seen them go at it kind of like they did with Batman versus Harley Quinn, mm-hmm. where a lot of it had that 66 feel, but it was definitely updated and a little more I mature. I like had a much more Batman the Animated Series feel. Yeah, well, uh, see, like Batman versus Harley Quinn, there were parts that were Batman Animated Series, and there were parts that were clearly, to me, very Batman 66. Mm, okay. it, it seemed like a blend. I, I would have liked to see them go that way towards the ending, maybe, but then again... I'll admit this wasn't just wasn't for me. Okay, uh, and even with the actors, like Adam West does a good job. William Shatter, I think, did a great job. Yeah, but uh, with a couple of the other characters, um, and I'm blanking on her name. Who? Uh, Selena Kyle, actually, Catwoman. Oh, Julie Newmar. Yeah, Julie Newmar, Catmart, like, woman in the original show, or one of the and, three and, actresses I think who played Catwoman. I, I think I remember you yes. guys mentioning this, where like she's one of the only char- one of the only actors where you can. 
you can hear that she's an older lady, and yes. it feels a little weird sometimes. Well, they actually also brought in Lee Mer- Merriweather for this one, who kind of becomes another Catwoman in the story, who also played Catwoman in yeah. the original series. Uh, Eartha Kitt was the other one who was not who is Eartha n- Kitt was the name not around for some anymore. reason. Um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, it's weird. Julie Newmar, she has that whole, whole sort of – it's really hard to hear her voice and think sexy Catwoman. Exactly. Because she and, sounds and, like an ancient old lady. And they treat her as sexy. That's like, I, you, like you, you remind me of my grandmother. This like, I can't get that disconnect out of my head. I, agreed. But, you know, this is like more or less – these things are basically a tribute to these people who were more than any other thing in the history of Batman – Made Batman a major star. Yeah. When this show came out, it was a mega success. Hard to believe it only lasted for three seasons because it was, I mean, it changed everything. Everyone on the planet knew who Batman was when Adam West was playing Batman on that show. It was a hit that no one expected. I was going to say, it, it, honestly, for all that I'm, I'm, it wasn't for me at the same time, I will say this. If you... If you do have a connection to Batman 66, if you do like that Batman 66 show, yeah. go out and get this. Yeah, because I, I think it will appeal to you <laughs> in time. And once again, I think the first one here, the Return of the Cape Crusaders, is much better. But this, there's still a lot of fun stuff here. Seeing Robin become a Two-Face is one of the funniest sequences okay, yeah, in this whole thing where he's like, keeps turning his head. He's like, Batman, you've got to help me. Ah, screw you, Batman. <laughs> it's really very fun. Burt Ward, of course, must have had a great time doing those lines. Yes. Uh, now, of course... This was a big deal as well because Adam West just died recently. So this is really his outside of a few uh, recordings he did for Family Guys next season. This was kind of his last performance. Uh, so there is a a, a full-on 40-minute panel at Comic-Con, which was the Adam West tribute panel, which has Kevin Smith, Lee Merriweather, and uh, several other people on the life and career of Adam West. Uh, there is a 14-and-a-half-minute interview with Burt Ward, which talks about – spends a little bit too much time talking about his dog food company that he owns, <laughs> which is weird. <laughs> okay. I, so I didn't watch as many special features on this. Day, so now yeah. I regret it. Yeah. It's, it's, he's, he's big into – like they, they have a support thing for big dogs that they just let live in their house. So there's like uh, photos of them in their house. There's like 40 like Great Dane-sized dogs just walking around. And I'm like, fuck okay. that. Um but yeah, they put out like a dog food and they spent a lot of time marketing it in this thing, but whatever. <laughs> uh, and there's lots of little bits where it's just like, obviously we're part of a bigger interview where he's like, Burt Ward on being starstruck, Burt Ward on ambition, and a little bit with Julie Newmar talking as well. So, I mean, it's fun. It's not essential, but it is kind of one of those like a pleasant enough farewell to Adam West. Yeah. I mean, the, the both in combination with the extra features on the previous one of this and the extensive extra features featuring Adam West in the Batman actual 66 box set. It's kind of, there wasn't a lot left to do special feature wise with Adam West at this point. You're like, yeah, yeah there's all, there's like eight hours of Adam West special features on <laughs> Batman 66 already existing. But I feel like this is the kind of that final little exclamation point on his yeah, career. And that's kind of what the movie itself feels as like yeah. just a nice little, Hey, cool. The last last time, one yeah. last time, into the breach, my <laughs> friends. All right, that's it for this week's digital noise. Uh, second, this week's second digital noise. Thank you, Aaron, for joining me. My pleasure. And I will be back soon with more. I don't know who. I have no idea scheduling wise who's next. I think it's Marco. Uh, with more of the Blu-ray and DVD reviews that you uh, love to hear us go on and on about. Let's hear it for our subscribers. Why? Because you wouldn't be listening to anything at all here at oneofus.net without them. 
sure they get benefits like our commentary tracks from movies, our weekly movie and TV news and trailer review show, The Breakfast Pub, our podcast, The Original Gentleman, with Martin Thomas, Bo Paul, and myself, Christopher Cox, and lots more, including some nostalgia and never-before-heard-or-seen stuff from our old site, Spill.com. Oh, yes, and the recent video logs and get-to-know-you're-one-of-us crew. Lots of fun to be had there. I could try to sell you on becoming a subscriber just based on all of that. But you know what the main reason is? Because all of this is only here because of them. Or because of you. You know who you are. Please, become one of the us. Support oneofus.net and help out a fellow geek like yourself.